when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Well, welcome to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. Today, we're talking about the devil's advocate question. How do you use the devil's advocate question? Well, first, you might be saying, what the hell is a devil's advocate question? Well, let me go back to where we talked about how there are three things that you are doing in trial. That was a couple episodes ago. If you haven't listened to that one, go back and get a little more familiar with it. But basic gist is this. Throughout trial, you are doing one of three things. You are either teaching, which means you're delivering content or giving knowledge to someone. You are storytelling, which means you are becoming a storyteller and you're throwing all your presentation rules out the window. Or you are dealing with resistance, meaning any defense arguments, things that jurors might be thinking that can destroy your case, so on and so forth. Now, this is true throughout trial, as I said a couple episodes ago. So it's also, it's true in opening where we are actual teaching section, story of what happened, the undermining, uh, here's what you might hear from the defense, so on and so forth. It's true throughout trial. You are, you aren't doing it anymore, but your uh, expert witnesses are teaching, your lay witnesses are telling stories, and your um, cross-exam is what's dealing with resistance. And that's how you're doing it there. You're doing it in closing. When you are teaching the jury how to fill out the jury uh, forms, you are telling a story there as well when you talk about what will happen to the plaintiff by projecting in the future if they do not get help from the jury. And you're dealing with resistance by teaching the jury how to fight for you back in the verdict room. But what most people don't realize is that we're also doing those three things in voir dire. We're, we're teaching when we're talking about, uh, or not really teaching, but the teachy part of Wadir is where we're talking about, you know, people's experiences with heart surgery or car crashes or uh, anything like that. That's kind of knowledge based. Uh, we are storytelling when we are asking people to talk about what's important to them or what happened after the car crash or how they were affected, so on and so forth. And we're dealing with resistance when we are, by very fact of dealing with the arguments by creating an issue-oriented wadir that the defense will bring up. And the devil's advocate question is part of that. So if you've heard me talk about opening statement. I say, after you do the teaching section, that's the section that's the, this is what should have happened. Here's how heart surgery should be done. Here's what hospitals should do once they're on alert that a, a patient has been molested by a doctor. Here is what a, a safe driver would do. Basically the rules of the road. So once you do the teaching section, what should have happened, you tell the story. What did happen? Putting those two things and juxtaposing them against each other is a really effective and persuasive way of getting jurors to come to their own conclusion of the wrongdoing in your case. But what I say is that even once you're done, even if you've done a great job juxtaposing those two things against each other, most jurors will still think, yeah, but what about X? 
Or what about Y? Or what about Z? Which is basically the defense arguments. If your defense is worth their salt, that's the cracks that they're going to try to widen in your case is those, yeah, what about moments. The devil's advocate question is basically like taking the undermining or the challenges section in your opening and using in a question form in voir dire. And let me just pause here for a moment and just remind you, or if you've never heard about this before, let me just tell you how important the connection between voir dire and opening is. I mean, this is a great example. Can you imagine how strong your undermining or what I call the challenges section in your opening will be if you've already dealt with it in voir dire? It just becomes so much easier for you when you've dealt with things in voir dire and you've had the jurors own the principles in your case and fight it out ahead of time, so to speak, so that when you get up and do your opening statement, it's it's your work is done. You're basically confirming the sanity of the jurors. We already talked about this. Now let me just fill in the details for you. Is basically what opening becomes. You no longer have to try and persuade anyone. So just a quick reminder there about how important Wadir really is. You know that that's my strength and that's my love is Wadir. And uh, that's one reason why. Because it makes opening so much easier for you and it really does the job of persuasion by really taking persuasion out of the uh, equation altogether. You don't need it if you do this right. Okay, so here's some examples of a devil's advocate question. So for example, let's say you're a criminal defense attorney and you are doing a self-defense case, um, or that's your defense, is that it was self-defense and that's why the person took out a gun and shot somebody. Okay, so maybe the other side is coming in and saying, yeah, that you do have a right to defend yourself, but this guy also had a chance to just run away. So why didn't he do that? Now, even though that's not... Um, legally something that we are as you know American citizens required to do that's not part of the thing that you know if you have a chance to run away that's the one you should take and if you don't then self-defense is not a defense available to you it does bring up a kind of common sense problem with jurors where they might be thinking yeah why didn't the guy just run away that's kind of dumb so a devil's advocate question in that situation would be like well, let me ask you this. What if you have the opportunity to run away? Wouldn't that be a more sensible option? Now, you might be thinking, sorry, have you lost your mind? You're actually going to ask the jurors <laughs> uh, to agree with something the defense said? Yes, as you know, my voir dire is, I wouldn't say risky, but it's definitely a type of voir dire where you own your facts, good and bad, which increases your credibility. But stick with me, the timing is everything here when we're talking about the devil's advocate question. So let me just give you a few more examples and then I'm talk to you about the timing and how important that is. So for doctors, for example, you might say something like, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Aren't doctors allowed to make mistakes? Now notice the the tone in my voice. It's very devil's advocate meaning it's very, yeah, but, which is exactly what the jurors will be thinking in their brain in opening if you do not cover this, okay? So you want to match your tone when you're saying it out loud, both in opening and here, with the tone that is in the juror's head because this 
creates a connection between you and the juror. If your tone of voice matches the tone in their head, it creates a connection. So jurors thinking questions, especially at the beginning of voir dire when there's lots or beginning of trial when there's lots of questions. So you want to use lots of questions and not just say them the way you guys say them, which is, but we also wondered about this. That's not a question. You actually have to make it sound like someone would be thinking in their head. Yeah, but doctors make mistakes. Don't we allow them to do that? That's a huge part of this. When you're using the devil's advocate question and voir dire, you want to make it actually sound like a question and particularly like a question that a juror would actually be thinking. Here's another example. So in a car crash case, uh, let's say it's a rear ending, rear ender case, you might say, all right, but let me ask you this. I mean, what if the car in front of you just stops suddenly? Isn't, you know, maybe you don't have a chance to stop. Now, again, if you're scared as you're listening to me say this, good. (laughs) That means we're on to something because these are the meaty, awesome questions. This is where, by the way, we win cases is when you are willing to step out and do some risky things. Now, let me show you how to do this properly so you don't go out there and fuck it all up, okay? Because that's what I don't want you to do. So listen, you have to, here's the general rule of thumb. It's what I want you to think of and keep in mind as you create your voir dire. Angel always comes before devil. Let me say it again. Angel always comes before devil. And what I mean by that is you have to first really solidify the idea that you hope jurors hold before you use the devil's advocate question. Now, I'm going to show you two reasons to do that. The first reason is obvious because we don't want to do uh, the scary thing, which is get them buying into the defense argument. And if you do the devil's advocate question too early before you've really established your angel part, then it will do what you don't want it to do, which is get them thinking about what they shouldn't be thinking about. So let's take the um, self-defense, for example. So let's say you start your voir dire with, um, who here believes you have a right to protect yourself? Tell me about that. You know, what, is, what does the term self-defense mean? What, what, what's, your, what's your understanding about that? Uh, so when is it appropriate to defend yourself? Do you teach your kids about self-defense? What are some of the ways that you can use to protect yourself? Is there anything that's off the table in your mind when it comes to self-defense? And you have this great conversation. Notice all those things. Now, if you go back and listen to those questions, I would be hard-pressed to find a juror that would be like, no, you don't have a, you don't have a right to defend yourself. Um, no, it's, you know, it's not okay to do that. I think most jurors would be on board. There might be some differences on what's on the table when it comes to self-defense and, you know, what it might mean to them. But I think everyone can really gel around the idea of self-protection and autonomy. That is just a, 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 what's the word I'm using for? But it's, it's wide reaching principle that almost all humans would agree with that when you are in peril, you have a right to defend yourself. Now, once I get that conversation going, now notice I had four or five questions I just threw out there. So we're, we might be talking about at least a 20, 20, 25 minute conversation just with those. I mean, it might even be longer. So we've really just gelled the idea. Maybe it's shorter. Don't, don't get you know caught up on numbers. We've really gelled this idea that yes, self-defense is a right. 
now is the time to throw in the devil's advocate and say, all right, sounds like we pretty much all agree we all have a right to defend ourselves. So let me ask you this. What if you had the chance to run away? How does that change it for you? Now, this does one, this is, does two things outside of the idea of, you know, timing just so you don't screw your case up. Outside of that reason, there's two additional reasons why this is great. One, it allows you to explore the defense argument, okay? It just gives you an easy way to kind of throw it out there. I mean, you're literally just throwing it out there. It, and two, not only does it, you know, by throwing it out there, you own it before they get to say it. Two, it now does something very, very interesting psychologically and sociologically. When people have rallied around an idea and started to own it, I've seen this happen hundreds, if not thousands of times. When you throw a devil's advocate question, normally 90% of the time, in my experience at least, they will start to argue even stronger for it because you've already created a situation in which they are now buying into this idea and and now that you've given them a chance to explore the idea fully and and think about it and think through it they're like yeah that absolutely is right absolutely and now you throw out a challenge to that human nature is such that it will then dig in its heels more it'll say absolutely not yeah if you have a right to run if you have a chance to run away you might take it but you don't have to i have a right to defend myself it's so interesting to watch this happen. So again, one of two things may happen there. It will either strengthen the argument or it will knock off some people who are not that with you so far. And that's good information to have. Uh, yeah, you might want to run away. That's not a good juror for you in that case. But it will tell you a lot and it will strengthen the people who are already for you in terms of that ideal juror belief. If you've heard me talk about ideal juror profile, you know what I'm talking about. So... Contrast that with the wrong way to do the devil's advocate, which would be this. Who here believes you have a right to protect yourself? Tell me about that. Okay, but what if you have the opportunity to run away? I mean, shouldn't you do that? Ugh, now you've killed it. Why? Because you haven't given them enough time to really play with and own the idea of self-defense. You've given them choice A and B, which do you like? And when put in that position, then people start debating it. And that really brings us to a really important uh, distinction here. I want you to be really careful outside of just even here where, you know, that is something that they could debate. We don't want them debating it. But I want you to start thinking about not allowing jurors to debate things that they shouldn't be debating in the first place. Those y'all who've been following me for a long time and are really gelling with the whole issue-oriented voir dire, here is one place where you tend to go off the rails with it. And I want to kind of bring you back. I mean, by the way, I love that you're going off the rails with it because that means you're experimenting. So I do not mean at all to shame you. But this is where, if you have issues with the issue-oriented voir dire, that you could get in trouble. And that's when you're so into getting the jurors talking and gelling with each other and let's explore this, that you get them to start debating things that should not be debated. For example, there's a big difference debating whether uh, people or jurors in this case will be able to follow the law, you know, uphold the law in this particular case versus whether that law is valid. I mean, let's take vicariously li liable or preponderance of the evidence. So often, Instead of saying, this is how it is, 
Will you be able to do that? Let's talk about your thoughts about that. What are your concerns about that? We say, okay, in this case, we're not only suing the driver, we're also suing the employer. And do you think that's fair? And they go, no, that's not fair. If the employer didn't have anything to do with it, why would we fire or why would we, why would you sue the employer? Blah. And it starts this whole big debate. And I'm watching this in our mock juries or otherwise thinking, no, 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 this is not the road we want to go down. Meaning it's not up for debate. Vicariously liable means that by the fact that they are the employer, they are vicariously liable for their employee. So we don't want to debate that. Just like preponderance of the evidence, we want to find out who can uphold that. If we do, I'm really wondering if we should even discuss preponderance. I'm on the fence about it. I'll let you know where I land on that. Um, But if you still talk about preponderance, and you may, and I may, and I'm not sure where I sit on that yet, what we don't want is to debate whether it's a good standard, because that gets you nowhere. What we want to say is this is the standard, and I'm wondering if you'll be able to uphold it and what your thoughts are about that. So the same thing goes here with the devil's advocate question, is that we don't want them, you don't want to give them choice A and B, now let's debate it out. You want to give them the, get them talking about A for a long time. And I don't mean, I don't mean time. I mean, just until it really gels that, yeah, this group is feeling self-defense. And then you go, what about B? Right? It's not equal. It's not A or B. Which one do you like? It's what do we think about A and and yeah, tell me more about A and your experience with A and how about A with this and how about A with that? Okay, but what about B? That's how you use the devil's advocate question. Always angel before devil and lots more angel than devil. But used correctly, boy, I love the devil's advocate question. Because again, those two reasons, it allows us to kind of throw out there some of the defense arguments. And sometimes it's really hard to find a way to kind of back into that question. So sometimes I say, why don't we just throw it out there? But it's got to be after you kind of really set up the idea of, you know, hospitals should keep patients safe and safety is their first priority. And what were your concerns about safety when you were hospitalized? And um, why is that so important? And yeah, but people make mistakes sometimes, you know, isn't that, isn't that true? Boom. That's where people go, well, wait a minute now, and this wasn't a mistake. I mean, they should have had protocols. You'll just find, you'll just be amazed once you start playing with this question, especially if you do it correctly, how it strengthens the argument. Again, due to human nature, once we buy into an idea, and you guys have read all the books on this, it's so hard to get someone off of an idea that they've already owned. So get them to own the idea first. Then throw the devil's advocate out there for two reasons, either to strengthen the idea with those who are really behind it or to see who really does believe it because it'll knock the other people off and they'll be like, oh, yeah, you're probably right. You should probably run away or yeah, people make mistakes. That tells you a lot of information that gets you the information that you want. All right. That's how you use the devil's advocate question. By the way, someone asked me to do an episode on that. I'm happy to do episodes on things you'd like me to do episodes on. So join us on the From Hostage to Hero Facebook group. Uh, It's a private group that you need to ask to join. You want to go ahead and like the Sorry DLM um, or the Sorry uh, Delamont Coaching 
consultant page too because that's where we post most of our content but in this private group you can post things that's where you go to talk about the stuff I talk about in the podcast and have conversations about that and say hey sorry will you post on this and I go live in that group and I take your questions so you definitely want to become a member of from hostage to hero those people will also be hearing ahead of other people about the membership that will be opening soon and when the book comes out so yeah join the group you don't want to miss out all right until next time we'll talk soon That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today. And until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself. Free yourself.